Turn with me to Mark 11. We're not going to skip chapter 10, so some of you people who like, what? Wait. <laughs> we just got to do what we got to do sometimes. <laughs> Romans 11. This is a, a great chapter. I, did I say Romans? I meant Mark. So I could, I, we'll get you excited, Daryl. <laughs> now, if you are familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you'll realize that these last six chapters, you know, 11 through um, 16, these last uh, six, um, are commentary on the very last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. You've got a third of the book, or whatever the percentage is, that's given to the final week of his life, his earthly ministry. You think there's something important in this week that we should be paying attention to? I always think it's interesting to um, have or hear the final words of people the final chapter. There's always a message there for those who go on to be with the Lord. Generally speaking, the Bible might be open to last chapters that they may have read, something that they've written. Very special. It's something that, if you're close to them and know them well, it's something that usually to take heart to. But this morning we're going to uh, look at uh, the appointed time. And John refers to this quite a bit. You know, his hour had not yet come. God has an appointed time for all things that transpire. And we, um, we, none of us choose the time that we're born, right? None of us choose the time we depart from this life. All that is based on an appointed time. Having that faith to trust that the Father knows what's best for all things. We see this in so many uh, different ways throughout the Scripture. This morning we're going to look at this special day, this appointed time in the life of Messiah. He was, it was a day that he would fulfill uh, prophecy. It was a day that he would uh, actually pronounce judgment upon the nation of Israel through a living parable. It was a day of cleansing. It was a day of learning for the disciples. So we're going to cover the first 26 Verses of Mark 11, if you'll stand, I'm going to read it. Mark 11, 1 through 26. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage, Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. 
So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at these, all these things, and as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again and his disciples heard it and so they came to jerusalem and jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple then he taught saying to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to, to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you may receive them, and you will have them. And whatever you stand praying... You have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. May God bless his word. You may be seated. As we enter this portion of scripture and he enters the city this is a it's kind of important to sort of visualize use your imagination i think it's important to use your imagination a little bit when you read the scriptures how would it have been to have been there what kind of atmosphere would it have been what was you know all the excitement about well when you realize that the people from the north country would have come crossed over the Jordan, a big share of them, because it was an easier road to travel, the King's Highway, on the east side of the Jordan River, the King's Highway. So they would caravan together. Obviously, it's safer because of bandits and that kind of thing. You just, you know, just a huge traffic, flow of traffic from the Galilee in the northern area up, or south, uh, to Bethany and Bethage, and then up over the mountain uh, of Olives, 
and then down into the city, you know, for this great event. Now, there were about, according to Josephus and others, uh, there were about three million Jews that lived in Israel. And so, you know, not obviously not everyone would attend uh, the Passover, but a, a big number. Plus, you would have the people uh, from the surrounding countries that were, you know, scattered. Some of them would, would actually probably make the trip. And so it is believed that Jerusalem at that time would have swelled to about two million people. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem or you've seen the pictures, it's not like it's a megapolis, you know. It's not that huge. And the train is, is, is fairly tough, uh, you know, to walk. And so it's, could you imagine two million people camping out, you know, the hotels would have been packed out well in advance, right? I mean, it would not have been the easiest place, but they were there for the week because it was important. It was the, one of the most important feasts of the, of the Lord uh, that they were to observe. Now, if you've got uh, that many people, can you imagine how many lambs are being slaughtered? How many beasts are being sacrificed? 250,000 lambs? Could you, man, those Levites were busy people. Rough, rough, rough week for those guys working hard, sacrificing, right? Uh, making preparations and all. And, and besides that, you know, Rome sort of had this idea of we've got to control the masses. You know, this is something that, that's sort of been, and I'll just inject this here, there's something that's really been skewed in our culture. Our police force and our authorities are here to serve and protect but the attitude that we have seen change in the last couple of decades, they are there to control us. That is a flip around. That is not what is intended. They are there to serve and protect. But when you're all about control and you're all about you know, you as a leader, then that's what you have to do. Uh, and so Rome was on full alert. You know, the if you have done any research, you realize uh the fulfillment of prophecy, that the temple was leveled. And if you uh, look at pictures uh, of Jerusalem uh, in the early 1900s, let's say, if you look just to the south before you get to Bethlehem, there was a, used to be a mound there. It's now flattened. And that is believed by many with good reason that that's where the temple actually stood. So you had what we have there today, but then to the south, there, that's where the temple would have stood and the temple precinct. And then they would have had a colonnade that would have come down from this, what we have the city there in the wall that the, the troops, you know, when Paul's taken captive and it says they came down, well, they would have come down that colonnade to the steps that led into the temple precinct. And so there was this, the Jews were here in the temple precinct area and then the... the uh, um, uh, Romans had control of the upper part, what we consider the, the temple area today. And so that w- could have housed or contained as many as uh, 12 legions. There was a huge, that's a huge area. And so uh, a lot of troops there this day. There were, you know, three years Jesus has been coming to this feast and they realize that the growing popularity and they are not... Uh, ignorant of the jealousy and the rage that the establishment has toward Jesus. So they were really concerned about riots and the breaking out. So, you know, and then the people who love the Lord, 
They just come to praise. They just come to worship. They brought their you know, animals or their sacrifices and all, uh, or their monies to purchase those kind of things that were needed. And so they were more than ready uh, to anoint Jesus, those that were in tune with the Lord, and to uh, pronounce him as the Messiah and receive him. And so this is sort of the atmosphere that we have, uh, and that's why they call it the triumphant entry, you know, just a, a time of victory. He's finished his course, he's done well, he's represented the Lord perfectly. And so, as we work our way through these paragraphs here, just some points uh, to uh, make in regards to that. Um, he sends two of the disciples to find this foal of the donkey. Uh, he's fulfilling prophecy. And it's always, the question is, did Jesus really know that? Was Jesus thinking, oh, I've got to line that up because, you know, I've got the Bible says, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that worked, right? But I'm sure he probably was aware uh, that that needed to happen. But it's, uh, it, you know, this, scholars want to argue about, well, was it prearranged? Or is this the omniscience of Jesus being expressed? He knows it all. Or was it just a revelation from the Holy Spirit that this, at that point in time, I kind of leaned to that thing, that this is what needed to happen. Uh, and so he spoke as he was led uh, by the Spirit. Uh, I don't really care if it was prearranged or not. It was prearranged <laughs> by God, right? <laughs> and that's the way you really have to, to look at these things that are questionable. You can get sort of hung up on things. And um, But I thought it was kind of interesting that Jesus by the Spirit, no doubt, knew what would happen when they went and untied this foal. And, um, you know, and this is the wonderful thing about walking with God. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery. It's adventurous. I, I think there's no greater joy, no more exciting thing than to walk with God and, then, and to have crazy things happen like, like, maybe not quite like this, but you know what I'm talking about. We can all attest to things like, that was really crazy. Wow, if that wouldn't have happened, whoa, that was the Lord. You, ever, you know, those are the kind of things that follow those kinds of events. And I'm sure you've got examples in your own mind that uh, pop up. So uh, we'll move along. I'll let you muse, muse on that to yourself there. Uh, but the thing that happened, the spreading of their clothes, and this is the worship, and this is something that was used to in that uh, mid uh, East culture and others, uh, the, when a king would return from war and victory, they would lay down their clothes, and it was just a big celebration. But they would usually come riding in on you know their stallions and their horses, and their, it would be all pomp and circumstances. So, contrary to that, look how Jesus, the King of Kings, the one who wrought all the victory comes riding in on a foal, a donkey, according to Zechariah 9.9. 9. You know, I mean, like, this would be, in the eyes of the world, like, a serious letdown. Really? Okay. Are you mocking? I mean, what is this? No, it's there to demonstrate something. Something that we should not miss. In his birth, I mean, really, you're going to be laid in a manger? And now you're riding into town on a little foal of a donkey? See, the colt is a symbol of peace. 
Jesus came and offered himself to make peace. You know, that was the announcement there. He came to save man from their sins. And, and, and the announcement of the angels at that time was peace on earth, goodwill towards men. So it's a, it's a peace offering initially. So this is uh, the symbolism that's behind that. Now, at the end of that section, it says that he went into the temple and inspected that. God has every right to look into what's going on, the worship, to inspect those who are, who are leading people into the presence of God. He's got every right to examine what's going on on the inside. And Jesus left. He saw what was going on. Now he had cleansed the temple, temple prior to... Uh, at the very outset of his ministry. This will be the second time that there's a temple cleansing. And uh, no doubt he went and that night and put together a cat of nine tails and made ready for what he was about to do. He went into the temple and then he went back out to Bethany which means the house of affliction. There's a little symbolism there. And yet, as the crowd is still there, they're still crying out and worshiping in, in their, that way. Hosanna, Hosanna. That's worship. That's why the, the Pharisees and one of the other Gospels says, Stop them! They shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> Jesus said, Well, if they wouldn't cry out, then the rocks would. He's fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling the word. And so, uh, that whole process of who is this? At least you can give the people credit. At least you can give the establishment maybe a little credit for at least asking the right question. Who is this? This guy riding in on a, a foal of a donkey in the Alps break of praise. All of this is fulfilling prophecy. And if they had known this hour, their day, they should have recognized Psalm 118.25. Hosanna. Hosanna. Many people were looking to Jesus for salvation. The Jews in leadership were not. They were confused. They thought Jesus was from Nazareth. Well, he may have lived there, but he was born in Bethlehem. You know, see, this is the thing about trying to fit a prophecy. I had a discussion this week with a guy who's, a, a, he's a brand, and what I mean by that is he's one who gives himself to the study of the scriptures. Very diligent, been doing it his whole life. And, but you have to be careful when you're studying prophecy and we're studying the scriptures not to get so opinionated and dogmatic about your opinions because no matter how long you study or what you may think you believe you don't have all the information that you need those people who are saying well he can't be Messiah because he's from Nazareth well he wasn't from Nazareth but they didn't know that many of them didn't realize that he fulfilled prophecy by coming out of Egypt and so there's lots of things so I try to stay away from things 
that are uncertain, uh, dogmatism and things that we try to be dogmatic about. There are several things we can be dogmatic about. There's only one way to get to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. It's only through the blood of Christ that our sins can be forgiven. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not have a fallen nature because God was his Father. So those are things that we can be dogmatic about. But when you start trying to piece together prophecy, understand that it's cryptic. Understand that you may not have all the pieces of the puzzle. And for those of you who have been studying, you realize that when things happen after they happen, you look at it, it's a lot easier to understand it after it happens, you know. So the thing that you hold on to is the hope and the promise. For example, we all believe and know that Jesus Christ is coming again. We don't know when. We just, that's not our call. That's not for us to know. So we just hang on to the hope. We hang on to the promise. And so how it's all going to work out is not of our business, but that it will work out. And that's God's business to make it work out here. The other thing, a couple of lessons we can pull from this whole scene of in the triumphant entry, uh, the lessons that are there, is, uh, again, we, we don't always recognize the Lord's ways. We, it's easy for us to miss them. God is so subtle and so quiet uh, in, in the way that he works in our lives. You know, we have these preconceived ideas on how God's going to do something. Naaman is a good example of this. A leper, you know, and he's been encouraged to come because there's a prophet in Israel that can heal him. And the little slave, Jewish slave girl that he had employed there at his his place in Syria and all. She said, well, if you'd go there, that guy could take care of it, you know. So he's there. And so on the way there, he's thinking, you know, I'm going to go to this guy and he's going to come out and he's going to wave his hand over me and and there's going to be this, you know, great, you know, clamor and banter and all. And the prophet says, well, just go wash and dip seven times in the Jordan. Come on, man. What? That dirty river, that dirty creek, you know. (laughs) There's a lot better, cleaner waters where I'm from than here. And so his servant, you know the story, you know, the servant says, look, if he'd have told you to do something great, you probably would have done that. But why are you just asking you to do something simple? All right. And he goes, he, he humbles himself. You know, what do you got to lose at that point, right? Be a leper or follow what he said. Okay. You know, he works through it. But he had, again, these preconceived ideas almost got ripped off. He almost got ripped off because of a preconceived idea. So even though it's very difficult for us, we have to be careful with preconceived ideas. You might be saying, well, I don't have any of those. Oh, I bet you do. (laughs) May God show us if that be the case with us, right? And as I said earlier, uh, horses were for kings. But what do they represent? Strength. It's really the pride of men. 
You know, the more men you can put in on a horse in an army, the stronger your army is, you know. It's the idea of self-sufficiency. And uh, the whole persona that Jesus had within his earthly ministry was complete, utter dependence upon the Father. I mean, this guy borrowed everything. <laughs> I mean, he borrowed this little foal. He borrowed a coin to, for an illustration. Borrowed a boat to teach from and to go across the Galilee. And I mean, this guy was, you know, I was thinking about that whole situation of borrowing. I like to borrow a facility that we could put everybody in. <laughs> could you look that out, Lord? <laughs> There's nothing majestic about a donkey, right? And Jesus had cloaked his true identity in the form of a man. And then as a man, he humbled himself. And the way he conducted himself in all this subtlety, only those who were sincere and seeking him could see through all of it that this was the Messiah. This was God come in the flesh. And this is the wonderful humility expressed in this fulfillment of this prophecy. You know, it's funny, and this is the way it always is. It's the common people that got it. It's the deplorables <laughs> that see it, that get it. And it's like that today. Some things never change in that regard. And I think this is an example for us who serve the Lord in ministry as, and all of us within the body of Christ. Uh, we should be humble and conduct ourselves in a way uh, in the spirit of humility. That's what our Savior. God is the most humble of all persons. And so that we're to be Christ-like in that way. But we also see in his humility the courage. Now this guy knows he's getting it. He knows what's coming down. He's been telling the disciples for a couple of weeks, like, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be turned over uh, to the Gentiles and I'm going to be beaten and, and scourged and that whole thing and, and, and then they're going to kill me. And they just don't get it. But this takes courage. Would you, if you knew that they were after you, would you go face the music like this? Bravery. You know, our God is not intimidated by anyone, by anything, nor should he be. He's the king. Everyone bows to the king. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Those who, who have not the fear of God, they have no idea who they're messing with. Now, when we think about God and how powerful and how awesome he is. And we read in the scriptures that the earth melts at his presence. Oh, well, you know, hey, that's just metaphorically speaking. What if it's not? That's scary stuff. And I don't think it is. How do, why would I say that? Because when he showed up, and apparently a lot of angels were there sort of representing him, but he's sort of in the background on Mount Sinai. It's smoking, it's black, it's thunderous, and the people are completely taken apart like, okay, no mas, no more. Moses, you talk to God, and whatever he says, you can tell us, and then what we'll talk, you know, you just be the mediator here, because he, we can't handle it. 
you get an idea, use your imagination. And I'm telling you, it'll humble you. I'm just a piece of dirt, you know, compared to him. Thank you, Lord, for your, that you care about pieces of dirt, right? But this, uh, imagine all this power, all this authority. He could have called down 12,000, uh, you know, 12 legions of angels down, right? Had all that authority to control it all if he wanted to. He controlled the seas. He controlled the wind. He had full control if he chose to exercise that, but he didn't. That's why we refer to Jesus as being meek. Meekness is authority under control. It's as if the Spirit was saying, no, son, you don't need any of that right now. I've got this. Lead on. Go on. And so just a dramatic symbol there, and we don't want to miss it. But then the example that he set, but then the other side of Jesus that is so scary, and it's scary to all of us, in that he pronounces judgment. And, you know, as we look at this parable, it's one of the two parables that Jesus, and and actually miracles, uh, that Jesus performed that that destroyed something. Um, No, at no time was a, any of the miracles or any of these great wonders that Jesus worked used against people. The other one would have been the swine that ran down the uh, the hill, and that was really wasn't him. That was the the casting out, and the demons were killed actually by Satan. <laughs> I mean, that whole thing of dumping him into the sea. But those are the two supernatural events that took place that led to destruction from the ministry of Christ. And why would he do that? There's some stories here. Uh, or lessons here, and especially when you understand that Deuteronomy eight eight and uh, Numbers thirteen twenty three, these were scriptures that show illustrated that the fig tree uh, was a type of prosperity uh, and blessing. You're going into a land that that has fig trees, you know, and and then I think Micah. Uh, talks about uh, chapter four talks about every man uh, dwelling under you know in his own little parcel under his fig tree you know so just uh, and yet now this fig tree is being cursed well we know uh, that in typology and the symbol here is representative of the nation of Israel we find that through the scriptures um, God talks about judging uh, the fig tree. Psalm 105.33, Jeremiah 8.13, and Hosea 2.12. So there's symbolism going on here. There's, it's symbolic of, of what is about to happen because in re- response to how they're treating Messiah, it, it, there is always an, a cause and effect. Things don't just happen because they happen. There's usually a cause and effect. You know, the, the Bible calls it, you know, uh, Sowing and reaping. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap that. If we sow to the wind, we will reap the whirlwind. And in this case, the nation was sowing to the wind and they're about to reap the whirlwind and it's illustrated here. And so it tells us, verses 12 through 14, that Jesus was hungry. Again, the humanity of Christ. And in a sense, God was looking for something in that fig tree that should have been there. But it was absent. It was not there. 
And by the way, Bethphage means house of unripe figs. So that area must have had fig trees that were noted for this. And we'll explain a little bit uh, about this particular parable that was acted out here. Um, Fruit is a byproduct of something that is alive. And um, you don't go looking for acorns around a pile of firewood. That wood is dead. It's now dried out for nothing but building a fire. And that's usually not where the squirrels go. They go to the trees where the acorns are at. And so the idea that leaves were on this tree is evidence that there's life. It's drawing nutrients from the ground. It's alive. It's produced leaves. And as you... uh, probably are thinking, well, April, March, April, that's really not the time that figs should be coming on a fig tree. But the fig trees have a unique thing about them in that they have the uh, what they call the first ripe figs. And they're s- sort of uh, hang on there, or, or produced. Um, they start growing when there's no leaves. The leaves fall in the fall after that. But then there's some in certain of the fig trees, these figs will begin to grow. And by that time, the leaves, before the leaves come on, they're there, and then the leaves cover them, uh, sort of how it happens, um, March and in April. And so there should have been something there, as Jesus pointed out. And so he's not asking this fig tree to produce something that it was not able to produce. That is the point. God would never do that. God would never require something of someone that they were not capable of doing or having. And so that's, that's the point we need to see here, if nothing else. He had created fig trees for the purpose of providing food and providing for uh, the people. And it was not bringing forth the fruit that it was created to bring forth. And so as a result of that, it became cursed. And so this is, if you start thinking about this, this is a pretty heavy-duty thing. We, as believers, are to produce fruit, are we not? And we are alive, we're consuming nutrients, we're taking in, taking in. There should be at some point uh, in our lives the production of fruit of the Spirit. If someone claims to be a Christian is not producing the fruit of the Spirit, well then they're just saying words. It's not a true conversion. There will always be fruit. The fruit of repentance, the fruit of the Spirit will be there if someone is truly saved. And what is actually happening here is symbolic of his, the curse that's coming upon the nation of Israel. They were supposed to bring forth fruit unto God. They had the appearance of life, but there was no fruit. God wanted abundant fruit to come from that nation, not only for their benefit, but to benefit the whole world. It was God's will that through his nation, the people of Israel would reach all other Gentile nations, but they became exclusive within themselves. Became self-indulgent and self-centered in their relationship, and therefore they did not produce the fruit comes an appointed time in all of our lives when God expects fruit to come forth. He puts into us, he puts into us, and then at some point in time there should be 
some development of that. And moving on to verses 15 through 19, the day of cleansing, the appointed time for cleansing. Think about how bold Jesus was. There are millions of people in this city. You know, did he have this, you know, cat of nine tails? And if he used it this time, did he have it under his robe when he walked <laughs> walked in there? I doubt it. He's nothing subtle about this man. Get out of here. I mean, he just let it fly. And it probably hit some flesh. Wouldn't be a bit surprised. They deserve the spanking. No. He recognized these abuses and he was upset. Because what this activity was keeping people from the worship of God. It was keeping people out of the kingdom. And nothing makes the Lord more upset than to see people being deprived of what he's freely offering and giving to them. Jesus understood perfectly the purpose and use for the temple. It was to be a house of prayer, a place where people could connect with God. And this is why it's so egregious for sin to take place within the chosen place where God has called you and I to meet with him. The things that go on in the name of the Lord within the church assembly in our culture is just beyond disgrace. And I'm not going to bring up any examples. You, Some of you know and have experienced some of that. There's no place for the flesh when it comes to the expression of in our worship. We see the example of Nadab and Abihu who were destroyed because apparently they got in the flesh and they didn't follow the directions that they were given. I want to break this down a little bit because this will help us understand. Um, there's two different words that are used for temple in the New Testament. And one of them is uh, Naos and the other one is Aaron. And it describes um, the Naos is describes the temple itself, the what would be the holy place and then the curtain and then the holy of holies behind that. And that would have been a, a fairly small uh, structure. You know, the high priest, as you know, only went in there once, once a year. It was that same area, that, that curtain there that was ripped and torn from top to bottom. In, in this particular setup there in, in that temple, um, that curtain was about four inches thick of interwoven material and about 20 feet tall. And so for it to be torn from top to bottom at the crucifixion should tell us something. Well, you think a few Pharisees just went in there and went like this? <laughs> I think not. God, what do they get a ladder? Got a tall ladder to get up there, right? No, God is saying something. Jesus is there in one sense to get this temple ready, sanctify it for the work that's about to happen there. And so, but this whole area, as I alluded to, this south of the what we have there today and the colonnade that would have been there, that whole area where the Jews would meet and the Gentiles and this, this horde of people that had come to worship would have been referred to as uh, the temple precinct, the Aaron. And so the whole area was referred to as the temple or the temple precinct. Uh, but the Naos was surrounded by a vast space. There was several courtyards. And this is where uh, this truth comes in and why Jesus was really upset. The first 
part the Gentiles could come into. And this is where these guys were doing the trading. Could you imagine as a Gentile, you've traveled hundreds of miles maybe, and you wanted to commune with God, and you have this, and you know, all these animals, just crazy noise, distractions, and you're just like, you know, you're just, it's just, you got to, again, use your imagination. And then there's the court of the women. Beyond that, the, the uh, beautiful gate uh, referred to as at the, of the temple. And the Israel, you know, Israelites could come into that. All Israelites could come into that, but not the Gentiles. You see the separation. And then, then beyond that was, would have been the court of the Israelites uh, uh, called the Nacor's Gate. And normally that's where the men w- would go on in. And then lastly, beyond that would have been a co- the court of the priests, which only the priests might enter. And this was, then the back of that would have been the, the Naos, the uh, area where the Holy of, Ho- uh, Holy of Holies and the Most Holy Place was in. So this whole idea of uh, bartering and bickering and animal noise it has been impossible for these people to worship. And, and, and that really disturbed Jesus to the point that he drove them out. It tells you how God feels about those that are seeking him, how he longs for them to come and make contact and, and meet with him and humble themselves. So the very people who sought God's presence and were representative of God's presence were keeping people from God's presence. And Jesus wanted to do something uh, about that. Why is that so important? Most of us may not be aware, but the worship of God is the most healing thing you can do for your soul. We are all fallen. We are broken. We are blind. As the scripture says, we are poor, blind, and naked before God. It is in our worship. It is when we connect with God that His Spirit begins to heal, renew, and strengthen us. It's so important that you and I worship God daily in some way. You see, God is a jealous God. He doesn't want us to be worshiping false gods or idols or going after things that we think will fulfill the void in our hearts and our lives. He knows. The reason why He's jealous is it's not anything about Him being selfish. Dismiss that completely. He just knows that if you do that, you're going to end up hurt. It's going to hurt you. It's going to eventually destroy you. If we worship anything but God, it will lead to our destruction. And he's jealous over that activity. And so, um, think about how Jesus cleansed the temple. He's jealous for you and for me. No more buying, no more selling. Get these tables out of here. And again, we can reflect a little bit why we're so picky at Calvary Chapel here about distractions. Try not to distract anyone during the worship service because God is meeting with his people. You're thinking right now, you're praying, you're, you're taking in the word or you're, you're, you're worshiping in song and you're communing to have that privacy and that private moment taken because somebody wants to do something off the wall or do 
that you know it's not very kind, is it? That's not very loving. So that's the idea behind that. But he does on the other side of this. He goes on and he uh, into the temple. And what does he do? It's beautiful. This is the true purpose of the assembly. What did Jesus do? He taught the people. He sat down and he taught the people that were there. The children were running around. <laughs> I love it. I just, you know, I use my imagination. The kids were running around and, and they, they probably tried to interrupt Jesus, really, right? <laughs> That's what kids do. I don't know. But the purpose of assembly was the teaching, was prayer, and worship. Those... That's how simple it is. This isn't about masquerading or you know bringing things in and, and you know pumping up the people. We're always going to, by the grace of God, keep it simple here. Worship, prayer, and the teaching of the word, and love each other, right? And so, in Jesus bringing this, Kurt, he's bringing an end to this religious system. Let no fruit grow on you forever. And so in reality, he's speaking of something that was yet to come. Forty years from that point, the Romans would come in and destroy the place to take the gold. And it would be plowed as a field. That's why today when you see the, or these photos I was referring to in the early 1900s, that place where that temple precinct and that whole thing would have been is nothing but a flat piece of ground. There's no colonnade coming down there anymore. But there are ruins that sort of lead to that and this and they they discovered that because of the water uh cisterns that come into that area that Hezekiah had built uh, for the purpose of cleansing and washing all these uh sacrifices that were made so there's lots of reasons to to buy into that theory so to speak but he was bringing it into that religious system that really was inadequate. It wasn't able to bring the true believer, the sincere believer, into maturity. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. But the new covenant could. Why? Because it wasn't laws written on stone. God would now write his law, his purpose, his ways, his love in our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What a powerful, powerful truth to absorb. This is why, I mean, how much closer can you get than God being on your, in, in your inner man? I mean, you think the Lord's pretty close to us? It's amazing. 
I want to close with this idea of prayer that's tied into uh, verses 22 uh, through 26 there. They're blown away that Jesus could just say, you know, curse the tree and it wither up like, whoa. (laughs) I mean, that's impressive. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Watch what Jesus, I don't want to be out of the end. And uh, the other end of that, you know, I'm sure the disciples were thinking, I don't want to get him mad at me. Uh, God would never do that like that to those who love him. But what is he telling us? If, if, if God's promises, if one of God's promises are true, then all the others are too. We can take God at his word. And so what does that say about these words that Jesus gave us about prayer? Prayer can remove mountains. Now what is a mountain? Well, to us it's an immovable object. I think it's the things that hinder the plans and purposes of God. Now, some of you think, well, that's literal. Is he talking literal? Well, okay, let me ask you, some of you faith warriors and prayer warriors, what advantage would it be to move Paris Mountain from its location to another location? The only people that could possibly benefit would be the developers. (laughs) And I don't think that really is what this is about. So there's metaphorical... Speech, I think, here, hyperbole to some degree. I don't know how much he's exaggerating, but the point is faith. Have faith in God. When you pray, you're going to receive an answer. And some of the answers are no, as we know. But it's yes, no, or wait, usually. Those are kind of the three categories that we uh, use. If we ask, we're going to receive. Because that's what he said. Pray, when you pray, believe, and you shall receive. Okay. Now, some of us just give up. We stop looking. We stop paying attention. Well, because God didn't answer that. Well, how do you know? How, did you, you, kept, you haven't been looking. Now, there, but on the other hand, there are legitimate things. It's wait. Well, man, I've been waiting for years for this one. I mean, come on now. I'm going to be dead before this one gets answered, you know, type of thing. Well, continue to believe because that's what he said to do. And here's the thing. The, some of the prayers that we pray can't be answered. We don't ever, ever think when we're in this promise that what we're praying, well, we can just make up and dream up and whatever we want, just boom. Like he's some cosmic errand boy ready to just, you know, pull the lever and here it comes, you know. No. Now, a good illustration is, this happened in the chapter before, is James and John got mom, because who's going to refuse mom? Their mom. Can my boys, when you come into your kingdom, can my boys, one on the left and one on the right? That was a slick little move. Peter thought, wish I would have thought of that. I could have got my wife in on this one, you know. Well... How did Jesus handle that? As with always, with grace, you know, you do not know what you ask. So understand that when you're praying this impossible prayer that you feel is impossible, do, do you really know what you're asking? And I, can, I will confess, 
I've asked them really dumb things, and they were not possible. So, but it's okay to dream and to have big, you know, call unto me, says the Lord, and I will show you a great mighty thing. So we're exhorted to do that. But sometimes in that exhortation, we, you know, don't really know what we're asking. But over time, we should figure it out. Uh, okay, that's not really part of your agenda. Okay, and we just accept the no answer. But here's the other thing that's in that story is that it is not mine to give, Jesus said, but to whom it has been prepared for. And therein lies another reason why God may say no or the prayer not be, may not be answered in the way that we want it to be answered. God has prepared an appointed time, but in a, in a, prepared an appointed, uh, an appointed way in which to bring about his purposes. And so that's why prayer to me and to all of us should be a thing of humility. Is this really what you want, Lord? Is this part of your agenda? And then, but there are other things that God has freely given to us that we should ask for because he wants to bless us. Does not the scripture say he's given us all things richly to enjoy? And so we can pray lots of different ways and different things, but when it comes to disappoint being disappointed that God did not answer the prayer that we had all kinds of faith we believe and it says this and we're taking God at his word and you know we're doing this whole little <laughs> standing on the promises right <laughs> and all I'm saying in all of this is just take time to examine how you're praying what you're praying about and then just think about the prayers that God has answered. It falls under that criteria, doesn't it? Like, yeah, this is, oh, yeah, okay. So, I love these great and precious promises that God has given to us. And um, understand this, and I'll close with a, a number of things that I think are important. Since we are a church of prayer, and we are people of prayer, Prayer is not something so you can delegate your responsibility. Well, I prayed about that. Now I'm done. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like if you pray about it, then you don't have to do anything. That's sort of get the vibe sometimes from people. Well, I prayed about that, and you know, or I prayed about that. And I'm just waiting for the Lord to do something. You know, like I'm delegating this now. It's in God's court. Well, is it? I don't know. Something. To consider, but we do know prayer is powerful. And what I want to imply by that is, is it makes us able to do what we can't do apart from prayer. In other words, when we ask God for help, He empowers us to do what we're called to do. Instead of delegating it to some of us, we get up and do it. There's th certain, it's, it's God directing us in the right way. Paul put it this way in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Man, I'm just not able to, like, whoa. You know, like, you, you, we kind of go through these peaks and, you know, peaks and valleys all the time. And then, you know, after you accomplish something, if, you, if you're like most people anyway, there's, you're down, 
like, oh, you finished a task and then there's just a kind of a letdown. And sometimes it's hard to get back up and start in again. That's where I need God's strength. Lord, just motivate me. Man, I am just so, like, not with it right now. God, give me strength. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when, it, when I say prayer is powerful. And, and again, prayer is not taking the easy path. Again, we receive power to do the difficult things because I want to shy away from the difficult things. I don't want to do that. I want to avoid it as far, you know, run the other way, you know. Prayer also gives us the ability to accept things. There are some bitter pills in life that we are called to swallow, so to speak. And by just praying and communing with God, you learn to accept, just like Jesus, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You don't want to do it. You don't want to go down that road. You wish it would go away, but in your heart of hearts, you know, like, I got to do this. This is the right thing. And prayer will help you accept that. And in that, accepting that, there's a transformation and there's a grace that takes place in your life, in your heart. This is why Paul, actually Paul could glory in tribulations because even though he was going through it, through prayer he accepted it and received the grace through prayer to endure the suffering and the trials. He's a tremendous example for us, isn't he? You know, how many times did Paul pray to be delivered from the thorn in the flesh? And maybe one of you or several of you may have a thorn in your flesh God, please heal me. I'm really fed up with this. This is chronic, you know. You've prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you're bearing it. Well, God may heal over in time, but until then, you're going to receive grace and His grace will be sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10 will give you an encouragement there. Prayer is not always the means of running away from a situation. It's just not. Don't use prayer as a, a cop-out or a, an escape. As I said, it brings the ability to bear. You're able to, to ha- hang in there. And remember, prayer is never made to remove tragedy. If I just pray hard enough, it'll go away. No. There's sometimes you just can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. It's over, it's done, and the results are final. It's not going to always remove the tragedy. It helps us face the unfaceable. And it takes us so we don't... It keeps us from going beyond the breaking point because some things just are crushing. So... Understand that God has something special for your life and purpose. It's been appointed for you and for me for certain activities and certain things. You have destiny, but that destiny and that purpose has an appointed time. This was the appointed time for Christ, and look how it just flowed. He fulfilled the scriptures. He fulfilled the purpose of God. And we're, we're part of his body. We fall. It's a template It's a template for you and for me. God has destiny and purpose. You're going to fulfill what is written for you. There's a book 
in heaven with your name and everything in it about you. It's already been thought through and ordained. Remember Jeremiah 1. Don't forget that chapter. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I sanctified you. I ordained you. Nobody else can do your job. Are you doing your job? Am I doing my job? Oh, God, help me. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for how solemn this moment was in history and how cool and calmly and most collectively you handled yourself in this final week. You received the praise that was due your name. You cleansed (laughs) that temple. You did things that were beyond what any man could do. And then, as a true servant, you gave yourself completely on the cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for setting the example for us. And now, as we've received these truths this morning, Lord, we ask, Father, by your Spirit, you would make them become a reality in our life. You would truly transform our lives, our hearts. And Father, for those in the room here that are suffering physically, we pray for your healing right now. For those that are suffering emotionally and spiritually just out of sync, or just out of it, I pray, Father, for healing and restoration and renewal in Jesus' name. So many distractions, so many attacks. We pray, Father, that you would bind the forces of hell and darkness and command your blessing upon this church body, Lord. That you would watch over every heart. Put your angels round about us, Lord. We know that we're fighting a a battle of wickedness, Lord. It's not against flesh and blood. These are spiritual demons of high order, well beyond our strength and power, but not yours. So we pray, Father, that you would clothe us with your armor, that we will be able to stand and withstand the assault that the enemy might put against us, Lord. He's trying to keep us from fulfilling our destinies. But your grace is sufficient, Lord. So we're praying for grace to be upon this church body, Lord. And now, Father, as we prepare to spend this afternoon together, eating together, Lord, we pray your blessing upon the meal. And Lord, I'm thankful for all the uh, ladies and their hard work of putting this together for us. Bless them and the fellows that are setting up. Lord, in this time that we can honor our sister, uh, Rosie, Father, we just ask your blessing upon this fellowship time and upon this meal. In Jesus' name, shall we stand?